Welcome to our cottage meeting for Moms for America. But I just want everyone to know it's okay if there's dudes, if there's dads, if there's kids, if there's teenagers, grandmas, grandpas. We are thrilled to have you. My name is Julene Jackson, and I'm the National Vice President for Moms for America over cottage meetings. The whole premise of Moms for America is that liberty begins at home. When mom and dad know these principles of liberty, these stories and miracles of America and honor and revere them, their children will know them and love them as well. How can we perpetuate what our founding fathers gave us if we don't know them? And this is what we're going to learn over the next 16 weeks in our Healing of America seminar so once again, my name is Julene Jackson. This is my husband, Al Jackson. Al and I have been married going on 30 years. We've had seven beautiful children together. Two little babes died in infancy. They are my favorite in the heavens. I call them my stripling warrior sons. And then we have five very wild and alive children, ages 26 on down to 13. And over the course of the next 16 weeks, as we study together, you will hear a little bit about some of these wild and alive children of ours. And we've got a wonderful Vivian, who is the manager of our Mom Links and Cottage Meeting Program, our national program. She is coming to us from San Antonio, Texas tonight. She and our wonderful mom from Utah, Cherie, will be helping to moderate uh, some of the questions in the chat room. As we go along in our class tonight, if you have any questions, feel free to put them in the chat and we will take questions at the end of class. We hope our class to go to uh, about an hour, an hour and 10 minutes each uh, week. And then we will take questions. We'll we can stay on as long as you want um, afterwards. Al and I are coming to you tonight from Austin, Texas. We have been at a Heritage Foundation Resource Bank conference uh, for the last few days. It's been a wonderful event. The Heritage Foundation is the largest conservative think tank in the world, and they brought leaders of the freedom movement and experts in the field of religious liberties and various topics on liberty uh, to come speak. And we had uh, breakout sessions. We heard from Ted Cruz today. He's a proud Texan and it was kind of fun to have him um, share a few words, Dave Rubin. It's, um, it was interesting to me what Ted Cruz had to say. He said, look, we are on the right side of the fight, but we have got to be happy warriors. There are too many people right now who are angrish, angry and harsh. And they're wanting us to be turned into, he called it soulless stormtroopers. Apparently he likes Star Wars. He had a lot of references to Star Wars soulless stormtroopers where we're just afraid to think we're being muzzled and silenced kind of embodied in this whole idea of collectivism and it just he says saps the human spirit he said we are going to have to be fighters uh, but we can be happy and hopeful warriors and this is who uh, we're going to be studying tonight some hopeful warriors before we begin, I just want to share with you, over the last year with Moms for America, we 
we, uh, we encourage mamas to gather together in their homes, moms, five, six, eight, 10 women, and to study these principles of liberty. And in, inevitably, when a mother becomes educated in the Constitution and the stories and the miracles of America, it's the most natural thing in the world for her to go home and then to teach it to her children or her grandchildren. So since COVID hit a year ago, we started teaching our cottage meetings online. And it has been so wonderful for the last year, we've been teaching online cottage meetings and moms from coast to coast have been joining us. And it's been such a joy to get to know and feel of the hearts of the mothers around this nation. I have participated, taught cottage meetings or had gone to cottage meetings, these study groups, for the last 13 years. And um, my husband and I, we've been married almost 30 years for about, I would say, what, out 20, 20 out of our 30 years. We've had a little morning devotional in our home where we would study scripture with our children in the morning. We, when they were little, they'd memorize a little poem. We'd sing a little song. We'd kneel down, we'd say a prayer, and then we'd get them off to school. Well, as I began to go to these cottage meetings, I began to come home and incorporate some of these principles of liberty and the constitution and stories into our little morning devotional. And I think at first Al wondered what was going on, but to his credit, it sparked something in his warrioring, liberty-loving soul. And he began to study what I was studying. And at the time, we were uh, going to these Healing of America seminars through the Thomas Jefferson Center for Constitutional Studies. And as he studied and attended these seminars, he joined the National Roundtable. And he even went on to teach classes around the country. And now he speaks uh, on the Constitution throughout the United States. And, and uh, at, for a time, he served in the Utah State Senate. And this foundation that he gained through this Healing of America seminar, wouldn't you say it was the Healing of America summer there, seminar that really gave you the foundation? Absolutely. Yes, it did. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, that has served you well now to do some of the work that you do in this freedom fight. And so I want you to know that when we begin to teach our children these principles of liberty in our little family devotional, and I had, we had moms that would, you know, teach what they were learning over the dinner uh, table or at night before they put the kids to bed. We just did it in the morning because it worked best for our families. But when we started to incorporate principles of liberty and freedom with our children, it's like our, our devotionals went to a higher level. When, when, when children can see their parents united in core values of God and a devotion to each other in the marriage as they're teaching together as husband and wife, and as you're teaching them not only godly principles, but principles of freedom, it strengthens that child in ways that they won't even realize and maybe not even realize for years to come. But, be, but you become as a parent a real stabilizing force in your children's life. And it helps to anchor them in hope when they leave that house, who knows what kind of whirlwinds and falsehoods they're hearing, but when they have been anchored in truth and hope from a mother and father, teaching them these principles, you have some kids that are gonna be able to withstand some pretty fierce storms as they spread their wings and leave, uh, leave your home. So I, I always teach mamas, you know, when you're feeling like 
you know, we're going to heck in a handbag and it doesn't look too good for the country. We, we will teach these ideas repeatedly throughout this healing of America uh, to, to stay anchored in hope and to really, you know, be able to heal this nation. We have to heal ourselves first. We have to heal our marriages. We need to get right with our children and those, you know, relationships. So the first thing you do is you look to God. You look to God for your freedoms. You look to God for help and healing and deliverance. You don't look to Washington, D.C. You don't look to the current president of the United States. You go to God. And that will drive you to be more of a praying, prayerful person. And it will drive you to be more in the word. And then you number two, you, you make that quality time with your family a high priority, a quality time. You teach you teach them in these godly ways as well to go to God and to, to study the word. And, you know, I, I'm, it's summertime, so we want to do a lot of fun things together, go to the pool, go shopping. Those are all great things. But I'm, I'm talking about making quality family time a high priority, teaching them the things that will armor them up, the tools that will give them the foundation that they need. And that will be an individual walk with God to know what that is uh, for you as an individual and your children. But pray to know how do we make family time a high priority and what does that look like? And thirdly, we learn, we will learn in these Healing of America seminars, the constitution from the viewpoint of the founding fathers they're the ones that said these inspired documents that they wrote were struck off by the hand of God. And, and we see over the first hundred years in which this country lived under these constitutional principles, how successful we were. We only had 6% of the world's population, but we were producing over 50% of the wealth. There was something very special in what our founders gave us. And as we've started to deviate away from those principles over the last century, the 1900s, we've seen that we're, we're not doing so well right now. And so we're gonna learn how that has happened. And lastly, as you do those three things, the Lord will put in your heart to, to do something, to join a group, to start a group, to support a, a constitutionally grounded candidate, to put a sign in your yard, to run for office, just to do something. And once again, that will be such an individual thing. But over the course of the next 16 weeks, I can almost guarantee you, you're going to have ideas about what you can do to be a part of healing yourself, healing with your family within the four walls of your home, healing your community, your school systems, this nation. And so every little, every little bit of inspiration and every little part that we have will will work together as a whole to be able to heal this land and this nation. And so um, we're going to turn, we're going to talk about today some beautiful, hopeful, happy warriors that were brave and they were faith-filled and they were led by God and they listened to God. And so let's just turn now. I hope everyone has their books. Let me hold it up. Let me show you what the book looks like. God's hand. Oh, can you see that? 
in Building of America. This is the first workbook. So over the course of 16 weeks, we're going to go through four workbooks. This is seminar number one. There are four sections in each workbook and each class we're going to go through one section. So we're going to be on seminar one, section one today. These, these books, workbooks are $12. You can buy them at the Moms for America store on our Moms for America.us website, or you can go to KimberCurriculum.com and also purchase these workbooks as well. So typically it would take 12 hours to get through this one seminar, and we're going to try and get through it in about four hours. So Al and I are going to ask that you do a little bit of homework each week, just about 15 minutes a day and it's fill in the blank and it has been shown studies have shown that when you fill in the blank you're using multiple sensories you're writing you're seeing you're listening you're touching and your retention is almost eight times they say as much as it would be with just listening or and not not using these these different touch sights and sounds and it's also been said that if if you will fill in with cursive there is an emotional connection that you have. You will remember it more if you use cursive, which is uh, such a reminder to me how important it is that we teach our children to write in cursive. Kids don't write in cursive anymore, and it's lowering their ability to retain what they learn. So just keep that in mind. Cleon Skousen wrote this Healing of America seminar, and he is a best-selling author. He got his law degree from George Washington University in Washington, D.C. He was an educator in universities. He was a chief of police. He was in the FBI for 17 years. He associated with presidents. He was very close friends with Ronald Reagan, uh, with popes, with world leaders. He has, uh, he, he writes a little um, intro here at the beginning of our seminar. And he says, I'm not pessimistic about the future of America. I do think the soul of America is going to be cleansed, he said, by events which will humble the whole nation and put us back on our knees where we can talk to God and recommit ourselves to lives of virtue and morality. He references this verse a lot in 2 Chronicles 7.14 in the Bible that says, if, if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will forgive them and I will heal their land. That is the promise from God. But in order for us to justify the heavens to intervene, we need to do our part. Now, God doesn't say, I need the majority of my children to turn from their wicked ways and seek my face. He just says, I, I need you to do this. Now, if you think of, you know, who, who, how many of the three million that were living along the eastern seaboard during the American Revolutionary Times, how many of them got involved in, in the war? It was only 3% of the three million 97% were either apathetic or were citing uh, their loyalty to the crown of England. So, you know, the Lord works through small and simple numbers, but he just needs enough of us praying and trying to get our lives in order and seeking his face and he will come forth and heal this land. Now, Cleon Skousen says, I know the sophisticates and the experts and the, and the um, cynics will just laugh at scriptures like this and mock it. 
But he said, God will not be mocked. And unless this nation turns from their crimes and drugs and abortion and political corruption, there will be a crisis and there will be a cleansing. But what can we do in the meantime? You know, we got to wake up each day. We still got to go forward and try to um, be the best we can and petition the heavens. He says, don't be a pessimist. I think he's saying here, be a happy warrior. Every family needs to do whatever it can to put its house in order. A home can be a refuge against the storm. And the love that is developed between parents and amongst children for, uh, is God's supreme formula for this kind of security. Whenever I find families struggling to build these kinds of bonds and tr of trust and love, I know that they're paying the dividends for the kind of insurance that will hold them together when the pressures and the, tr and the trials come. You know, recently I was talking to one of my friends and she said, I happen to stumble upon a picture that my 20 year old daughter had posted on Instagram of, of her in a bikini. And she, you know, once she got finished clutching her bosom and going, oh my word, she had a conversation with that uh, beautiful girl. And she said, I think these young girls are being so desensitized watching The Bachelor and all these crazy shows that, you know, make them seem like their power of seduction is their greatest worth. And so because she had a good relationship with that daughter, she talked her through and said, sweetheart, you're a daughter of God. You don't need to do this. And this little girl took down that picture. Another friend told me that she, the spirit just whispered to her when she saw her son looking at his phone and then he quickly kind of hit it when she said, what are you looking at? The spirit said, you get that phone. And she sure enough looked at that phone and there was a girl that was sending this 16 year old good kid inappropriate pictures and she and the father sat down and they talked to this boy and they worked it through. So what I'm saying here is we're going to have struggles, moms and dads, but if we're building the kind of relationships we need to have when these storms and these pressures hit, we'll be able to have these conversations with our children and they will be able to understand the wisdom of what we're trying to say. So, you know, many have said to Dr. Schausen, why do you seem to continue to be such a happy warrior, an optimist? And he said, look, I've read the book. I know in the end we win if we do our part. I promise you, moms and dads and families, over the course of the next 16 weeks, you will begin to know what your part is. You know, our founding fathers understood as they petitioned the gods and heaven what their part was. They truly were inspired uh, to do what they did to settle and establish this land. And we need to have that same kind of confidence as we do our part that God in heaven did not establish this first free people in modern time to just see a collapse into oblivion. America will be saved, but it will be saved like from by men and women, moms and dads and families like you who will take the time and it will take a little bit of time and energy to learn about the founding principles of freedom and then work diligently to restore and implement them. Now, I know you might think, well, that's a little bit of a tall order on a Thursday night, but, you know, don't worry about all the specifics of it right now. Just worry about showing up every Thursday night, 7.30 Mountain Standard Time, because this is how God teaches his children, line upon line, precept upon precept, we're told in Isaiah, here a little, there a little. 
So just keep standing on that wall and it will come to you how you can be a part of the solution. So this first um, seminar will be God's hand and, and the players, the people that he used to establish America. The second seminar that will start in four weeks will be all on the Constitution from the viewpoint of the founding fathers and what has come since the Constitution and some uninspired things that have, have, have um, disrupted what our founders gave us. The third seminar will be about how America has become unhinged, the attacks, the systematic attacks by organizations, groups, and peoples to change the direction of this country over the last century. And the fourth seminar, the, uh, the last for best, is how to heal this land, how to heal our families, how to heal our neighborhoods, our school systems, our state legislatures, how to heal the constitution. And, and how to heal, you know, uh, inter internationally ideas. And, and I know that might seem like, oh yeah, that, now how can I do that? But I will show you how little moms have, their influence has been worldwide when we get to seminar number four. So, you know, I really think our founding fathers probably would have considered what we're going to study over the next four weeks, some of the most important parts of our study because it covers this, tempestuous, <laughs> and hard time saying that yesterday in the class, tempestuous, how would you say that out? Tempestuous. Well, anyways, this perilous historical period that they were going through to give birth to this new uh, uh, nation. So our founding fathers understood, they were acutely aware that all mankind is, is seeking a few things, freedom, prosperity and peace. So they set out to find a government that would provide for these things. The unfortunate thing was there was no government that existed at that time that provided for those three things. So they had to sit down and invent one. Imagine, imagine that being your part, how to invent a government that would ensure peace, prosperity, and freedom for its citizens. So this is their story. And this is what we're going to talk about over the next four weeks. And so with that, let's turn to the events and the people who prepared the way for freedom. Section, seminar one, section one. I hope everyone has their manuals. I'm not going to go through line by line and fill in the blanks with you. So I'm just, we're just going to give you an overview. This is why I want you to come already studied. So read this together as husband and wife or uh, as a family at the dinner table, and then you'll, you'll, you'll bring more uh, understanding uh, to our class each week. So we're going to get started with number one, how the Crusades, did you know this, how the Crusades led to the discovery of America? The Crusades began around 1100 AD, and they were taken simply to liberate the Muslims from the Holy Land. Now, these crusaders were European Christians, and in the name of God, they massacred and pillaged and plundered for about 300 years, but they were unsuccessful in, uh, in this mission. But what it did do is it brought these Europeans in contact with the people of the Mediterranean, and especially in contact with the luxuries of the Far East of, uh, of China and the Arabian nations and Japan, their spices, their rugs, their fabrics, their perfumes. 
And the Europeans at this point in history, instead of having to go through the Arab merchants, they wanted to go directly uh, to um, use the, uh, the trade routes and, and discover these trade routes that would take them directly to China and Indonesia. And so in 12, what was it, 1271, a young boy by the name of Marco Polo left with his father out of Venice, Italy and with their uncle, and they did not return to their homeland for 20 years. And there they explored the, the sea routes and uh, the trade routes that led to China and all those lands there. And Marco Polo, I mean, the only thing I knew about Marco Polo as a mother was it's a game we played every summer in the swimming pool. But now I'm learning the true story of Marco Polo. And he would go on to write a book called The Marvels of the World. And I have to think it was some of his writings that would inspire another young boy 200 years later by the name of Christopher Columbus, who he too loved exploration and the sea and it would call out to his soul. Now we're going to talk uh, about three different countries and what was going on in their ongoing search for freedom around this time period, the 12, 13, 14, 15, 1600s. Let's first turn to England. England, um, they were the only Europeans who were fighting to preserve the basic institutes of the Anglo-Saxon culture under people's law. Have you heard of the Anglo-Saxons? Many people believe that the Anglo-Saxons were the descendants of the lost tribes of Israel that were scattered around 700 BC when the Assyrians swooped in and scattered about 10 of those tribes. And many people believe that some of those tribes went up north to the Scandinavian countries. And they seem to have lived under these principles of people's law. And at that time, guess who was the first one to institute people's law? Al, do you want to tell us who, who was the first to institute this common law, people's law? Oh, okay. So when you read the Old Testament of the Bible, it's, it's quite daunting, particularly when you get into the words of Isaiah. I mean, it's, it's a real text that you have to dive into and really take it, take it seriously to get something out of it. And there, but there's one story and the Old Testament actually is just a bunch of stories. And there's one story in particular, Exodus chapter 18. And this is when Moses takes the free children of Israel, as they're called, and they're, they've, left, they've left the Pharaoh in Egypt and they're out in the wilderness. And Moses is spending the entire day listening to the concerns of the people and judging issues between them. And this is about 3 million, 3 million Israelites that we can assume and estimate were, were part of his party. So 3 million individuals. So Jethro, his father-in-law comes to him one day and says, Moses, what are you doing? Why are you spending all of your time with these individuals, with everybody trying to resolve their problems? And in fact, you know, your, your wife is spending more time in my tent than in your tent. So this, it's a problem. So anyway, what he tells Moses is you're going to wear yourself out and wear out the people. So this is what I advise you to do. I invite you to do this, Moses. You need to, first of all, identify the people into families and then divide them up in the tens, fifties, one hundreds and one thousands and then have those groups 
pick a captain who will be the, their judge. And so that way you divide up the responsibility of government among the people in small groups so that they can take care of the small local problems. And guess what? You can just deal with the big ones. So you and I can go play golf tomorrow while the captains that you've, that you've chosen, that you've endorsed, can take care of the needs of the tens, fifties, one hundreds, and a thousands. So there you have people's law where local problems are dealt with at a local level. Moses being Washington, D.C. only deals with the big problems. Okay, so there you have it. That's the first form of representative government was found right in the Bible. And don't you know, those early settlers, the first uh, governor of the Plymouth Plantation, uh, gleaned that and put that into his first little, little compact that they wrote. And certainly our founders, you know, tapped into this people's law. So the Anglo-Saxons lived under people's law. And then over the course of 600 years, that law began to be corrupted as they would feud with these Vikings from uh, Denmark who were fierce fighters and pagans and often quite barbaric pirates. And ultimately the Normans, the Vikings from the, uh, the has were kind of from French lineage, but originated from Norway would conquer England and they infused in and into this uh, you know into England rulers law and uh, it corrupted the Anglo-Saxon system of people's law. Now sometimes you're gonna get some recommendations from Al and I on videos or books to uh, movies to watch or videos or books to read or to buy Al and I, one of the moms from uh, America that were on our call um, this spring said, Juline, there is a really interesting Netflix series called The Last Kingdom. And they have done four seasons and they're actually filming their fifth season right now. And she said, it's based on Bernard Cornwall's The Saxon Stories. And it's kind of the history and the relationship between the Vikings and the Anglo-Saxons. And so Al and I began to watch this series and by the, uh, the end of the first, epi uh, first season, I, I was clutching myself thinking, this is, this is just too much violence and sex for me. So we put it away for a time. It was fascinating history though. And maybe, maybe it is accurate. Uh, I mean, they were known to be barbarians, you know, in that time. And then we got back to watching it again and we are, <laughs> We're watching it. I think we've almost gone to the end of the fourth season, waiting for the fifth. But it's an interesting time period. It takes place about 866 um, AD. And it, it, and it just shows, tells the stories of the Anglo-Saxons and the Vikings and that bit of history. So maybe I'm recommending that. Probably not to watch no. with the Don't with the kids. The Mostly everything we recommend is with the kids. So I hate to have our first recommendation be maybe not with the kids and maybe not at all. But I'm just saying it tells an interesting history of the Anglo-Saxons and uh, those Vikings from, um, from the North. So anyways, um, England is conquered by the Vikings. But by 1215, the oppressive policies of the Normans have almost become intolerable and the English barons 
rise up and they rebel against King John and they compel him to sign that famous Magna Carta, which means magnificent charter in 1215. It's during the time of Robin Hood. Or during the time of Robin Hood. Is he a fictional character or is Robin Hood really real? Uh, he's fictional, but he's real to me. Oh, he's, he's real to Al, so therefore he is real. But, you know, some of the wonderful statements in the Magna Carta and, and the petition of the writs, which would come in 1628 in the Bill of Rights from England. Did you say writs? Petition of writs, it's called. Oh, yeah. W-R, thank you. Yeah, okay. W-R-I-T-S would be statements that our founding fathers would glean and uh, put into our inspired documents in, in 1776 and within the constitution. So let's now um, leave England and look at what was going on in France. In the early 1800s, in this ongoing search for freedom around the world during this time period, you can see God is beginning to wield his hand here. There was a major war in the 1400s between England and France, and England had invaded France to the degree that the, the king of France had to go into hiding and he had been dethroned. And the French crown prince called the Dauphin was in hiding and France was in a state of chaos. Little did they know that they would be rescued by a young girl who at the time was 13 years old and God was going to give her the power to liberate the, their entire country and free them from this uh, English invasion. So Joan of Arc, everything that we're going to talk about in this section is going to come from the New Advent Catholic Encyclopedia. Now I'm going to probably cream some of these French names, but let's just tell the story. Joan of Arc was born in Doremi uh, in France in 1412. And she was the one of five children, the baby of the family, and born into a, a little pheasant um, farmer home. And they were poor, but they were not needy. And she never learned how to read or write, but she was just skilled in sewing and spinning. And she was a deeply pious, devoutly religious young little girl. And it, it was said that she could often be found at church absorbed in prayer and for the uh, praying for the poor uh, tenderly. Well, at the age of 13, little Joan began to hear voices and she ultimately would go on to call them her counsel. And in, in over the course of time, they began to be blazes of light that were accompanied with these voices. And, and ultimately, she began to see them in the flesh. And she said it was St. Michael's who is mentioned in the book of Daniel and in the New Testament. And um, St. Margaret, uh, St. Michael and other angels, she says, which you wonder who might those other angels have been. And then she um identify St. Margaret and St. Catherine, who were prominent women around that New Testament time, who were both died martyrs as young, young women in about 300 AD. And she said that um, her little voices began to make known what God intended for her to do. And they gradually taught her line upon line. And her voices, when she was 16, became insistent that little Joan go present herself to the captain of the royal guard of the king uh, at, at, at that time. His name was Bodricourt, Robert Bodricourt. And he was a brood of a man who didn't respect women. He was rude and he is degenerate. 
So imagine when she was presented to him that she had come to save her, her beloved, uh, you know, French nation. He just laughed at her and said, take her home to her father and let her get a good whipping from him. And so meantime, so Joan was turned away, but uh, at the same time, uh, or Orleans, or Orleans, I'm not Orleans. I've actually, I was in, in that little town uh, about two years ago, was being raided and um, her voices became very urgent at this time. And they said, uh, you need to go to the king immediately. And she said, I'm just a poor girl. I, I don't even know how to ride a horse very well, let alone fight. You really want me to lead troops into battle to reclaim our country? And the voices said, it is God who commands it. And so she was told where the king was in the town of Shinon, the, the crown prince. And um, her voices also told her at this point, she was to dress like a, a man. And undoubtedly it was to protect her virtue. And they even told her um, how to um, put little loincloths over her private area and how to tie them with ropes so that she would be safe from any sort of attack as she was now going to go into a very rough life of, of camp. So she goes to Chinon and, and I, probably she was met with some resistance and she said, I know the king is here. He was in hiding. No one was supposed to know he was there. And she said, if you do not let me see him, I will tell people he is here. So they thought she was just a crazy visionary, but she got their attention. She was allowed in. The crown prince was actually dressed in disguise because he was just going to see if she was really the real deal. Joan went, went right to him. And there she... Um, she communicated to him a sign, a secret sign that her voices had told her. And it was never really expressly said what the secret sign was, but it is written that it was believed that she saw a prayer that the king, the crown prince had had, uh, you know, maybe the day before or, you know, shortly up into that point praying to God that if you would just spare France, you could take my life, but save my people. And so she reiterated this prayer. And because of that, he had to somewhat half-heartedly have to believe in her mission and allowed her to begin to, to lead the troops into battle. And so she was uh, given a sword, was going to be given a sword and some you know, equipment to prepare for battle. And she said, I actually want the ancient sword of St. Catherine, uh, it, or this, this ancient sword will be found behind the altar in St. Catherine's church. And obviously she loved St. Catherine because St. Catherine was one of her voices, one of her counsel that had been coming to her for a few years now. So sure enough, they found this ancient sword behind the altar of St. Catherine Church. I wonder, does anyone know if St. Catherine's Church still exists in France today? Wouldn't that be an amazing little church to go visit? And then she also had made for her a, a, a flag, a standard that had had the words Jesus and Maria. It was a picture of God the Father kneeling and presenting the French symbol of the flower of light on this banner. 
And she said, I love the sword because I found it in the church of St. Catherine, whom I loved. But she said, I loved my banner 40 times more because I carried it with me everywhere I went against the, the enemy. It was like, you know, maybe what gave her courage that God was overseeing what she was about to do and what, what she was doing. So she has her troops and she moves forward and she summons the king of England to withdraw his troops from the French soil. And he is furious at the audacity of a young girl telling him this. And so she leads her troops into Orleans and she takes the English forts. She encircles the city. Then she moves her, her team on through Rems or through Troy and on through Rems. <laughs> I don't think I'm saying that right where she captures that town and the um, crown prince is crowned again. And she stood through that uh, ceremony with her little banner. She said, as it had shared in the toil, it was just that it should share in the victory. Now, the way little Joan of Arc led, she commanded from the front. In those days, they were led from the back Commanders would stay in the back and the troops would go ahead. But she ha had another plan in mind. She said, I'm going to lead from the front. And many of the troops said, well, we we're not going to follow you. I mean, she might have been having a hard time just staying on the horse. And she said, I will not be looking back. And forward host, she went with her banner. And often when I get to that part of the story, I think how many times as a mother, and maybe you felt this as, as a father, <laughs> when we tried to, you know, lead our children in a, in a certain way and direction, not really knowing if they are going to heed our counsel or advice, but we have to just move forward anyways, whether they're following us or not. We have to have the faith in God to move forward. And that's what little Joan uh, did. She said, only moral people will fight for God. So at this time, there were women in camps of that day, probably still are uh, among soldier camps, uh, whores, prostitutes. And she told these women that they were either to leave immediately or they would die. And she told the men, if you are not going to be honorable to your wives, you must leave. And this was the standard by which she set she said, when you are in the army of freedom, you are in God's army. So immorality and vulgarity could not be tolerated. And wouldn't you know, 300 plus years after this, George Washington would establish the same military code of conduct following the standard of Joan of Arc so they could be justified in the heavens, blessing and intervening. It's interesting to note um, just 25 years ago, under President Clinton, uh, the U.S. military changed their code of morality into a policy called don't ask, don't tell. And it's been a steady decline under President Obama. He ended the don't ask, don't tell. And now you can openly practice any form of morality in in the military and that's a frightening thought because joan understood and george washington understood that in order for us to qualify to seek the protection of heavens we have to be abiding by his law 
And that's probably why they were able to have success, Joan of Arc. So little Joan at this point, she was 18, 19, 18 years old, wanted to go home, but her troops uh, pled with her to stay on because they still had a little bit more work to do. So she did, but her voices told her, Joan, you're going to be taken prisoner. And she was, she had a, a, a group of troops of about 500. They were battling in 1430 in Burgundy and they were being driven back against a fort and the drawbridge came up while a few were still out uh, of the uh, protected area. And Joan was one of them and she was taken prisoner. They believe it was a French traitor by the name of John of Luxembourg that was in league with the English to uh, have her captured. And, you know, the last thing the English wanted to do was to create a hero out of this young girl, make her a martyr. So they decided, let's, let's try her in a church court. Let's try her for cross-dressing or hearing voices or misrepresenting herself as a man. Let's, and she obviously was being falsely accused. And they wanted really her to deny these visions and voices uh, and, and as diabolical, really, of the devil. And of course, she would not do that. And so they tried her and, and prosecuted her as a heretic and burned her at the stake. Now, her last little request was to have a white dress. And some say, uh, so she was burned alive in, in this white dress. And, and uh, you know, it's been said because it was kind of a symbol of her virtue and her morality. And it says her demeanor at the stake was such as to even move her bitterest of enemies to tears as she held that little cross up against her chest and embraced it. And until the end, she declared that her voices came from God and she had not been deceived. And her ashes um, after her death were thrown into the Seine River so that her grave could be unknown and unmarked in her life and honored. But it only took 24 years after her death. She was 19. She was 19 years old, yes, when she died. 24 years later, there was a rehabilitation court amongst the Catholic Church, and they reversed and annulled the sentence that had been pronounced when she had been burned at the stake. And in 1909, she was deemed a saint, St. Joan of Arc by the Catholic Church. Now, the important connection that you make with little Joan of Arc in America if there had not have been a France, do you want to explain that out? Yeah, so France, as you all know, came to the aid of George Washington and the revolutionists in the American Revolutionary War. And in order for them to be able to have done that, they had to be a free nation. That's why it's so critical what Joan of Arc did. She freed France so that several, a few hundred years later, she could come to the aid of America. Yeah. So without France, there couldn't have really been an America. They saved at the Battle of Yorktown is their French fleets came and allowed us to win that battle, which just exhausted the English and they surrendered at that point. So um, a few months ago, my little 13 year old girl and I watched a wonderful depiction of the story of Joan of Arc. It just came out, I think in 2019. 
BYU, if you'll just Google BYU, Joan of Arc, up comes this movie. And I think they collaborated with two other religious universities. So it was these three religious universities that produced this beautiful story of Joan of Arc. So me and my little girl, I think you were out of town now. So we watched it, we popped our popcorn and we actually clapped. At the end of the movie, my little girl said, Mom, that is such a good story. So you can recommend that one. I I wholeheartedly, 100%, watch it with the kids, the grandkids, the neighbors. So my little girl is 13. So imagine the conversation I had with her, how the Lord will use young and simple girls that she was only 13, Joan of Arc, when she began to be called of God and little Marie honey, God might have a mission for you. And just like Joan of Arc, you'll have the courage. He'll be with you. Hopefully you won't be burned at the stake, you know, but it was, it was a great story for her. And so I'd recommend that. Okay. So let's turn to Spain. What was going on in Spain? Um, Let's see. We are, okay. We're 920. For almost 800 years, there was another kind of religious fervor battling going on between the Muslims and uh, uh, some of the folks in um, Spain and in Europe. And uh, after a thousand years, the Muslim ruler of Granada surrenders to Ferdinand, Ferdinand and Isabella, king and queen of Spain. And they were uh, religious uh, king and queen, and they were really quite humbled by their victory after a thousand years of feuding. So I think that's what made this king and queen of Spain amenable when Christopher Columbus would come forward in 1492, exactly at the same time period, and request that they fund a voyage of his because he felt, and he, and he relayed to them as a young boy, he claimed, was it Jesus Christ or just angels? An angel. An, an angel came to him and said that there are other sheep which I have, which are not of this fold, other sheep which God has, which are not of this fold on this continent that I want you to go and find and take my word, take God's word to them. So he had kind of a Joan of Arc experience as a young man. And, and so, you know, some people will say, well, he just really wanted to go, uh, you know, explore better trade routes in Japan or China. But it's interesting uh, that that's not really the case. He was really off to do what the angel had directed him as a young boy to do. And, and it's evidenced by the fact that he took Hebrew interpreters rather than Chinese or Japanese interpreters with him on his crew as he set off on the three ships because he assumed he was going to go find these lost tribes of Israel, you know? And so after he, Christopher Columbus had four voyages and the first voyage, he was on the sea 286 days. And after that first voyage, the first voyage he landed in Haiti and the Dominican Republic by what we would know today. And after that first voyage, he went reported to Isabella and Ferdinand, he said, I come to your majesty as an emissary of the Holy Ghost. It was the Lord, he said, who put it in my mind and I could feel his hand upon me those 286 days at sea. There is no question that the inspiration was from the Holy Spirit and he comforted me 
He said, I didn't make use of my intelligence or the mathematics or the maps. It was simply a fulfillment of Isaiah that had been prophesied. And if you go to Isaiah chapter two and Isaiah chapter 42 and Isaiah 55, it talks about how all nations would flow into this land. And uh, Christopher Columbus felt he was a part of that prophecy. So it's interesting, on the second voyage of Christopher Columbus, he landed in what would be known as modern day Puerto Rico. And he named that island after St. John the Baptist. And uh, there is, we were just there a few months ago and we, we visited in, San, in old San Juan, this um, John the Baptist uh, old church that Ponce de Leon, which was also a Spanish explorer was actually buried there. And there's great statues of Christopher Columbus all over Puerto Rico. And it made me kind of sad to think of all the statues of Christopher Columbus that were pulled down over the last year or two with all the rioters that, uh, that has been going on. And I, I think a beautiful statue in Richmond near our, we live in Washington, DC. We're from Chevy Chase, Maryland. And so a statue came down in, in Richmond and, and uh, Minnesota. And just in April, there's a beautiful Christopher Columbus statue in front of the train station in Washington, D.C., Union Station. And it was spray painted and, and de um, desecrated. And so Christopher Columbus, modern day historians have not been kind to him. In fact, a lot of cities and states don't even recognize Christopher Columbus Day, October 12th anymore. They've renamed it the Indigenous People Day. But as you really study who this man was, he was just doing what God has had directed him as a young boy being led by the Holy Ghost, going to find these other sheep and to, to begin to discover and colonize this land. Certainly, I don't think he had anticipated what this purpose could have led to or imagined 300 plus years later, a, a, a land of freedom was going to be established. And no doubt, you know, over the course of those four voyages, as he would leave his men there, some were very good to the natives, some were not good at all to the natives. And so this is where history has painted him and accused him to be, you know, a, a genocidal terrorist and all kinds of labels they've given to Christopher Columbus. I want to recommend a few good books for you so you can understand more about him because he's misrepresented certainly in schools, modern schools. So there's a wonderful book called Christopher Columbus, the man, man of myth or man of God. And you could get this. I think it's only $12 on KimberCurriculum.com. I've read this to my kids before. I see, I see you reading this all the time. I, I, a lot through the, the last few years. Another one is the light and the glory. Al, is there anything you like about this book, the light and the glory? It, it tells a true story. I think it's really, it's really helpful. Yeah. The man who wrote this, his father was the chaplain in the U S Senate for years and Peter Marshall. So this is, you know, I'm, we're going to give you recommendations of books and whether you get them or just get one. What I want you to do over the course of the next 16 weeks, you're building your I Love America library. So even if you get it and it sits on that shelf for a time, a year, a month, a couple years, you will eventually be inspired to pick it up and pull from it. So these are just some valuable books that I have found myself going to through the years. One that I really like right now, and it's a recent book came out just about a 
probably two years ago, is the plant, uh, the Pilgrim Hypothesis. And he, he sheds light on the Joan of Arc story and the Christopher Columbus story. And he recognizes that there were some misdeeds that came from those voyages, but to paint Christopher Columbus the way modern historians have is just not accurate and, and is not true and fair. And he also talks about the pilgrims, obviously. And this is these are the three groups that we're talking about um, tonight. And also another great book called Patterns of Liberty. And um, Vivian, will you put in the website where, where this isn't on the Moms for America store. We're gonna try and get this on. This tells the story of Joan here and it's got a section and great pictures of um, the Anglo-Saxons and Christopher Columbus and the pilgrims. And it's a really good book on how to teach these stories to your children. I really uh, like this book through the years too. I've used this. So, so just some outside suggestions. You don't have to get any of these books. No one uh, is getting uh, rich off these recommendations. <laughs> Mom for America is not making any money off these books here. But um, so Christopher Columbus dies at a relatively young age, 55. But I'm telling you, the 1500s belong to the Spanish because they were conquering Western, the Western Hemisphere with with um, Cortez uh, discovering and conquering the riches of Mexico uh, and Pizarro. Uh, launched a campaign to colonize Peru and uh, Ponce de Leon discovered Florida and DeSoto discovered the Mississippi River and um, and often mostly these conquerors would uh, institute harsh colonial rulers law which meant that all the power was vested in that ruler so the Spanish really seemed like they couldn't be stopped until the French came along. And, you know, the 1500s belonged to the Spanish, the 1600s belonged to the French, where you have Jacques Cartier uh, discovering Montreal, Canada, uh, De Salle discovered New Orleans, modern day New Orleans. There was about 80,000 French settlers along the waterways that kind of controlled the heartland of North America. And it kind of made it impossible for the Spanish to proceed further uh, up into, uh, beyond Florida without a major confrontation. But that's okay, because the Spanish were kind of preoccupied with all the gold and silver that they were um, in South America and Mexico that they were claiming. But what was happening during this kind of impasse between the Spanish and the French was little groups of English colonists uh, were fleeing from the harsh kingly rule in England. And over the course of about 120 years, 3 million English immigrants were populating the Eastern seaboard there. And, um, and they were beginning to introduce some of the fundamentals of this representative form of government, which they were were discovering through the Anglo-Saxons. And as they studied, you know, the ancient principles in the scriptures were discerning this form of government from Moses. And so uh, here they come, our, our, our little immigrants from England in the 1600s and, and really it was 1585. We don't really think of them. Um, Sir Walter Raleigh brought a group that landed in Roanoke, um, North Carolina on the Outer Banks, but they, they died off of disease. And then another little group came uh, shortly thereafter, but that colony just vanished. 
There's a wonderful musical called The Lost Colony down on the Outer Banks in the summertime, and it's starting back up again, uh, depicting what happened, the mystery of those, those little lost colony. We don't know what happened to them. And then the group of English settlers that actually stuck that we know came 1607. And this, uh, uh, they were um, uh, sponsored by King James and they um, settled in Jamestown. Oh, mom and dad, put this on your bucket list. Maybe you don't need to go to Disney World after all. You need to go to Jamestown, Virginia. There's the most beautiful museum and visitor center and uh, ships that have been recreated on, on the water there where they arrived and the uh, recreation uh, of the encampment. And then for a time we lived about 10 minutes from Jamestown and we lived in Colonial Williamsburg and we would go there often to fill the history of that place. And, and they were living under um, secular communism. So they, they, you know, the group that landed there were all supposed to work together for the good of the whole. And that, did, that wasn't working because some people didn't want to work as hard as others. So it wasn't until they gave everyone their own little pieces of land, they began to flourish and then 13 years later, our little group of pilgrims would come from um, uh, the Dutch colonies. They, they fled England up to uh, Denmark. And then from there, they believed that, you know, God wanted them to go to the new world and to spread his word and that he, they would be protected. They made a covenant with him to live by his laws. And so they, a hundred of them set out on the Mayflower. And we know that 50 of the hundred died that first winter, that first harsh winter. But I love in this book, the Pilgrim Hypothesis, Tim Ballard talks about those Mayflower mothers. Did you know that three fourths of the women on the Mayflower died that first winter? And he says it's probably because mothers have always been the first to give up their food or their comfort for their children. You know, those mamas probably laid their bodies on those babies to keep them alive. Hence the three fourths of those mothers gave their life to secure what would go on to become this great Republic. And I often think as a mother in America today, what am I going to give up? What am I going to sacrifice to save this Republic? for my children and my grandchildren. I love those Mayflower mothers. Well, at this point, now you're probably wondering, boy, Al doesn't really speak very much. And I told him this first class, I, he wasn't gonna have to teach too much. He was just gonna kind of observe. And then you are gonna see him speaking because he's a great teacher. He, he's gonna start to teach uh, more of the lessons starting next week, but he's gonna teach this last little part. I'm just here at eye candy. <laughs> And, and you are, you, you serve that purpose so well. But he's going to teach us about how biblical morality became established in America. Okay, so as Julian indicated, 1607, Jamestown is when the first settlers arrived in America. And they came with the Bible. They came to America to escape the religious persecution that was in England because you had to belong to the king's church. So they wanted the freedom to worship God according to the dictates of their own conscience. So they took that Bible that was first printed in 1455, the Gutenberg Bible, brought it to America with them in 1607. So these are God-fearing people who want to worship the Lord the way they want to. And so it's interesting to note that in 1619, 
the first Dutch ship shows up that has slaves on it, 1619. And I think you all, most of you on this, on this Zoom tonight have heard of the 1619 project. They want the American history to begin in 1619 when the first slave ship arrives. But if you think back to the people that were here during that time, they actually did not want the slaves because they were God-fearing people and they knew that it was wrong to have their brothers and sisters in bondage, whether they looked like them or not. However, King James at the time said, no, you are going to take these slaves and you know the rest is history. And we can, we'll talk about that topic a little bit later. But as I indicated, they came with the Bible, the founders, and we're gonna talk about this later on in, in section one. And then when we get into seminar two, when we talk about the constitutional convention, they were also well-versed in the Bible. That was the foundational book for America at the time. And if you think back in history, schools like Yale, Columbia, Harvard, Rutgers, and so forth, those schools were all established by churches. So the founders were, were, were well-versed in the Bible. In fact, most of them could read the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. So you had Bible study when you went to college. And one of the things that the founders understood is that they thought of America as more or less a modern day Israel. And why would I say that? If you hearken back to the story of Daniel and he's interpreting King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he talks about the four kingdoms that will wipe out the Israelis, that will enslave them or scatter them. You first start with Babylon, then come the Persians, then come the Greeks, then come the Romans. So there's four kingdoms here that disrupt the children of Israel and scatter them. So the founders believe after reading these scriptures that, hey, we're the fifth chapter in the story where we believe that we're gonna establish America as the gathering place of scattered Israel. And also Christopher Columbus thought the same thing, that, that the remnant of Israel would end up in America according to the, to the will of the Lord. And so don't you know the founders read in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses one through eight, the promise and covenant that they would make with, with the Lord in establishing America. And as we go through these seminars in the God's handing of building of America, we will read about stories of miracle after miracle that are woven in that highlight the Lord's hand in building this, all stemming from that time when the first settlers arrived in 1607 with the Bible. And it's almost, they consider themselves as part of divine destiny or what we call today manifest destiny, that they felt inspired that the Lord had brought them here to this country and that this would be the gathering place for scattered Israel and that they would set up a government based on God's law. And we will study that as we go through this, particularly when we get to seminar two and highlight some of those leading features of the constitution that come right out of the five, first five books of the Old Testament. Wonderful. So just like Al said, the founders felt that they were a remnant of the house of Israel and that they were going to be 
entitled to the protection of the Abrahamic covenant of God if they would pledge to be one nation under God. And uh, you certainly saw that as, as George Washington was sworn in as the president in 1789 at Federal Hall in New York. And he put his hand on Genesis, on, on the Bible, and to uh, Genesis 49, verse 22, that talked about uh, being a remnant of the house of Joseph and how uh, his posterity would spill over the wall kind of thing. Read it, Genesis 49, 20. If you go to Federal Hall in New York City, it's in the Wall Street area, you can go into the Federal Hall and there's a, like a little museum there. And the Bible that he put his hand on when he was sworn in as president is there. And it is open to Genesis 49. And then his first act of business was to walk with the members of Congress that were there for the swearing in just a few blocks up to the St. Paul Church and have a church service and covenant with God to be a nation under God. And that little St. Paul Church is still there today. You can go there in New York City and there's a little plaque of the pew that George Washington sat at and worshiped at. So Put these on your bucket list of places to see with your family or with your spouse. So clearly, you know, this is a covenant nation and we can continue to evoke, turn on this covenant as we continue to pray and to look around and roll up our sleeves and be a part of the solution and serve and to fight for what God gave us. Because we know in the scriptures, God loves liberty he loves this agency that he gave us to be able to choose, to decide right from wrong. I mean, there's multiple scriptures, uh, references in the Bible, in Galatians 5.13, to stand fast in liberty. And in 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the spirit of God is, there will be liberty. God knew that in order for liberty to uh, excel, there had to be a maximum environment of freedom. And, and that is what he gave us here in America. And because of that, we're able to worship him freely and to access the powers of God and to be able uh, to qualify for his blessings. So I hope that through our class today, this evening, you've been able to see that God wove his hand in establishing of this land, that it's almost indisputable what a little 13-year-old girl, uh, an 18-year-old girl was able to do and what a young Christopher Columbus was inspired to do and how this little band of believing people were willing to take their little families across to the new world. Now, next week, we're going to study the 1700s. We'll be into the 1700s where America splits with England, and you're going to see the birth of this new nation in that fateful year of 1776, and the genius of Thomas Jefferson and these ancient principles that he understood and wove into the Declaration of Independence. I love this first seminar because it's all about the miracles of God, and I hope it kind of revives our faith in miracles and God's ability to still be a God of miracles. And it seems like in our nation, our country today, we're going to have to scale some almost, you know, insurmountable mountains. But because God is a God of miracles, we're going to study him. We can we can expect him to continue to, to bring forth his, his miraculous hand as we do our part, as we hearken to the, the 
the promptings and the whisperings that we'll get from him, just as little Joan of Arc did, just as Christopher Columbus did, just as our pilgrims did, that as we continue to look to him and not to governments to, you know, figure out our problems and to deliver us and to heal us. And as we, you know, get in the habit of gathering our, our children and family together and making family time a high priority, maybe just start by beginning to have a little morning and nightly prayer with whoever's in the home. We do that. We just drop on our knees. We hold hands and we say a prayer. And sometimes that's the only thing we can get in. But if you can just start by praying together as a family, and then we're going to start to learn these miracles and the constitution from the viewpoint of the founding fathers and that this knowledge will rise up in you and give you a confidence that you didn't even know that maybe you were lacking or maybe you did know you were lacking, but you're, you're going to fill in some gaps there. And then certainly God is going to, if you'll do those three things, God will put upon your heart what you should do to be a part of the solution. So that is the end of our seminar one, section one tonight. Thank you so much for being with us.